everybody. This is Rich Phipps, and I'm the lead pastor of Grace Collective Church. Welcome to our podcast. Whether you're a part of our local church family or a part of our online community, we're so glad that you're here. Enjoy the message. Hey, so let me ask you a question just to kind of get us started, to kind of kick us into gear this morning. Let me ask you this. How many of you are the middle child in your family? Any middle kids? I am too. This is so cool. So who's your counselor? (laughs) But it's true, right? Don't you feel like sometimes you're kind of put in that position or, or you're hemmed in by your birth order? Like if you were born first, how many of y'all are firstborn? Okay, you're the leader of the pack. So you are expected to be the leaders. You're supposed to be responsible. Some of you are like laughing at each other. This is who you're supposed to be. This is, this is what psychologists tell us, that the firstborn is that person who's like an overachiever. Uh, and then how many of y'all are baby of the family, people? You're just spoiled. You, you know, and we all know it's true because uh, mom and dad love you, you know, last, so they love you best. But how many of you as parents, you've had like, you know, more than one or two kids. And so you know how this whole birth order thing goes, um, especially when it comes to the baby of your family. If, if your first child, and you remember this, right? Your first child eats something off the floor. You freak out like, get it out, get it out. You know, and then your second child eats something off the floor. You're, and you're like, five second roll. It's, pro- it's probably going to be okay. But you're when your baby of the family eats them on the floor, you're like, it's great. Less vacuuming for me. As long as they beat the dogs to it, you know, <laughs> it's great. But so, so baby of the family, you, you have a radically different um, personality. You, are, you feel safer in general, and so you are a, more of a risk taker than your older siblings. That describes you. But it's, it's us who are the middle kids. I mean, we have the syndrome. There is a middle child syndrome, that's what they call it, and we are people who are supposedly, we are uh, more rebellious, woo, right? We're more rebellious, we're less religious. I don't know how that one worked in there, but it did. Um, we, we, we feel less loved, we feel more abandoned because we weren't the, the, the pride and joy as the first child, and we're not the baby of the family, we kind of got stuck somewhere in the middle, and that's just who we are. And, and that's how you're kind of pigeonholed into that if you are a middle child. But hey, show of hands again, middle, middle children again. Hey, what's the best part of an Oreo? You know that's right. Don't forget it. <laughs> Save the best for last. Hey, but even if it's not your birth order, doesn't life have a way of just, again, hemming you in, putting in a, you in a position you didn't ask for, you didn't choose, you maybe you don't even want, but it's who you are, it's how you live, it's where you live, this is who I am, this is my life, this is my ordinary you have, you've been placed there by life or whatever circumstances, and sometimes um, it just feels like you're stuck in that place and your life is lagging. Now, I, I, I smile when my son Matthew says, man, my game is lagging. Like, he's protecting the universe with the rebel force, so I, I get it, but what is it, a whole one hundredth of a second behind what it should be? You know, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you look at your life and you say, man, my life is lagging, like, I thought by now I'd be with somebody. I thought by now I would be somebody. I thought by now I'd have, I'd have a better job, a different job. I thought by now I'd be somewhere else. I thought by now I would be somebody else. But you find that you're not, and you're still in the place where you once were, and your life is just lagging, it's, and it's not catching up to where you thought it would be or where it should be, and so you're stuck, and you're just living in this place that now you just consider to be your ordinary, living in your ordinary. But what if it didn't have to be that way? Like, what if, what if God could help you to see that your life is anything but ordinary? What, what if he didn't want you to stay in what you consider to be your 
ordinary. Doesn't mean your job's going to change. Doesn't mean you're going to get the the perfect relationship. Doesn't mean that everything's going to work out just like you think it should. You know, it's not, when you move from ordinary to extraordinary, which is what we're talking about, doesn't mean that that all, all the things around you change. It's not about your context. It's about you. And what if, what if God could begin to show you that even if you still live in ordinary, you can be extraordinary in the midst of whatever context you're in? Wouldn't that be a good thing for the days when you're in the valley and it's hard? So we're going to talk about that um, for these next four weeks together. And, and what we're going to talk about is, is the fact that, again, your, your life is not going to be without challenges, but you'll find new strength in them. We're going to talk about the fact that it doesn't mean that you won't be making decisions that don't carry regret. You're just going to have a north star to get back on on track. It doesn't mean you're going to be living perfect, but you're going to be living with a different purpose, and that will make you extraordinary. It means your life moving from ordinary to extraordinary, and that's what this series is all about. For the next four weeks, we're going to discover four steps, four steps that you can take to move you from ordinary, your ordinary, into God's extraordinary. It's going to be a great journey. You're going to meet some really great guides along the way. But before you meet them, um, you know, they say that every journey, no matter what it is, every journey begins with a single step. But every single step begins with a place to push off from. So let me give us a pushing off place uh, to start us off today. This is a passage of scripture I'm going to encourage you not only to look at today, but to, to memorize and make this a place where you stand. Because listen, when you are living in the ordinary, those, those moments, it, sometimes it feels really, really hard, like you'll never get out of the ordinary. Like you'll always be stuck with the syndrome that you're in. You'll always be stuck in the place that you are. And it can be, it can be really, really a downer. So let me give you something that, that will give you a foundational place from which you begin to take the steps from ordinary to extraordinary. This is what I'm going to call a memory verse for the next four weeks. Now, it comes from Lamentations. Woo, sounds super exciting, right? Lamenting, right? Lamentations. But it's Lamentations in the Bible is a great book. But here, here's this uh, two-verse passage. And by the way, parents, your kids are learning this as their memory verse for the month, too. If your kids are in crew, they're learning this. So I hope you'll um, go over it with them. So here it is. It goes like this. It's on screen. Because of the Lord's great love... We are not consumed, meaning, you know what? God loves you so much, he's not going to just burn you up, right? And it doesn't mean you're going to be consumed by the ordinary of your life and, and the challenges of life. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great, O oh God, is your faithfulness. Sometimes your scripture may read, your mercies are new every morning. This is telling you that even when you're in the lowest of the lows, even when it looks like tomorrow is going to be bleak, guess what? God is in tomorrow already, and his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, that God is not against you, God is for you. All of that is waiting for you when you wake up in the morning to start over again tomorrow. And I I don't know about y'all, but I need that on some of those days, living in my ordinary, to remember that God has extraordinary still ahead of me. So this is the stuff that can keep you in the game, moving from ordinary to extraordinary. And you're going to discover this movement, this journey, by watching two of the most unlikely people to lead you there. One is an expat Jew. The other is an ordinary orphan girl. Now, when they take these four steps, when they make these four moves in their lives, uh, which you'll watch them do, you're going to see that he becomes a hero 
and she becomes a queen. I'm not going to say you're going to become either one of those, but the process they were on is a process you can get in as well. You're going to see them. They're going to go um, through like unreasonable challenges against impossible odds, fighting every part of their ordinary, risking their lives to save a nation. And their story goes like this. From the book of Esther, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders from Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So here's what all that means. A hundred years before this started, the land of Babylon, the king of Babylon, went down to Judah and conquered the Jews. And when he conquered them, he didn't just you know, beat them and leave them there. He took a lot of them back with him as his captives. This is known as uh, the Babylonian exile. And some of you may have heard that before. It's from 597 B.C.-ish. Then in about 539 B.C., uh, Persia became powerful. And they went over and they attacked um, uh, Babylon and beat up Babylon in 539. And then in 485 BC, Xerxes became the king of Persia. So Babylon beats, beats up Judah with the Jews, takes them into captivity. Uh, Persia defeats Babylon, and Xerxes becomes a later king of, of Persia. And I want you to look at this map because this empire was enormous. That is, all those colors together form the Persian Empire at the time of Xerxes. Not even Rome got that big. This is over 2.1 million square miles of kingdom. Xerxes has a lot of territory and a lot of people under his reign. So, so more, for more than 100 years, then, the Jews have been living in exile. When, when King Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated Babylon, he, looked, he, he got in there and he said, Hey, who are you people? Like, we're the Jews. Where'd you come from? Down in Judah. If you want to, you can go home. He gave them permission to leave. And many of the Jews left exile, went back down to Judah, but some of them stayed. And when you read through the book of Esther, you're reading about the Jews who said, you know what? I was born here. I know this is not my homeland, but this is where my home is. This is my people now. Uh, even though we're a separate people, my, my school is here. My friends are here. This is where I, I'm familiar with. And so they stayed. And the story of Esther happens among the people, the Jews, who stayed in exile up in, up in Persia. Now, living in that ordinary, they say, this is now our ordinary. It's not what we really want, but it's where we are. We're going to stay here. So living in that ordinary was a Jewish man named Mordecai and his cousin, whose name was Esther. Both of Esther's parents had passed away, so she was an orphan girl. Uh, her cousin, kind of more like an uncle figure for her, because uh, I think he was a bit older. The name Mordecai took her in and raised her as if she were his own daughter. So that's setting the story up. So now King Xerxes is, is, is in power over all of Persia, that big map you saw. Uh, King Xerxes, he decides to throw a party. Apparently, there ain't no party like a Persian party, because this party lasted 180 days. Picture that. How many of you have been to a grad party? 
You couldn't wait for it to be over, right? It lasted a couple hours. Uh, you may have a birthday party. How many of you can't wait to send kids back to their houses when they've been at your house for like half an hour? This party lasted in Persia for 180 days. And Xerxes, he just likes to show off his wealth. He, he, I, I think he was kind of like a pushover goofy king, but he had a lot of wealth. He has all this land. He has all these um, people under his control. And he says, hey, all my important people, all my nobles, all my princes, all my, my leaders, y'all come over to my palace for a while and let's just party for 180 days. And they spend 180 days just showing off. He's showing off all, of, all the stuff he's got. And, and at the end of that 180 days, he has a banquet that lasts for seven days. Like one meal, continuous, for seven days to kind of end the banquet. And during that time, it says he was, with great liberality, they were eating and drinking. He's just pouring out the wine, and they all had golden goblets were all individual and all different. Like, this is my souvenir, take them. How many of y'all have stopped by our, our table upstairs as a new person here and gotten your mug? That's not gold, right? You can put that in a microwave. But they, they all had these golden goblets, and they're all drinking and drinking and drinking. And to the end, at the end of that seven-day banquet, after all 180 days of just partying and, and, and now the big banquet, Xerxes gets this idea. And you know how this goes, right? Aren't there times in your life you think back to, man, I've got this great story to tell, but it came out of a really, really bad idea to start with. Don't the worst ideas end up with sometimes the best stories? So Xerxes gets this idea he, you know, he's been partying hard for, for 180 days and really hard for the last seven days. He thinks, my wife, Queen Vashti, she is something to look at. So why don't we? Why don't I just bring her out here and me and all my drunk friends can just stare at her for a while. Now, ladies, if your husband's been on a, been on a seven-day bender and he says, hey, baby, why don't you come out here with me and all my buddies, and we're just going to look at you for a little bit. What would you say? What, come on, this is a no-brainer. Like, what would you say? No way, right? So Vashai, he, he sends, he sends these, these uh, servants, and hey, Vashai, come on out here because they want to take a look at you. And she's like, I don't think so. Not, that's not happening today. And, and they take the message back, hey, your queen said no. And Xerxes, remember, he's pretty ripped. He's like, oh, is she allowed to do that? I don't think she's allowed to. Remember, he's a goofy king. I don't think she, and he got his, his advisors, his trusted advisors, seven of them around him. He's like, you're my best friends in the world, right? We're best buddies, right? You know, they're all a little trashed. She said no, and I don't know what to do with that. And they're like, king, king, here's what you do. Listen, if, if word of this gets out, and it's going to get out, Every wife in your kingdom, every woman in your kingdom is going to start saying no to their husband in everything. Man, they're going to see, hey, Queen Vashti said no to her husband. We can say no to our husbands, and we don't want that to happen, king. So you need to write a law, an irrevocable law that says that Queen Vashti is no longer ever allowed in your presence. Like, we'll show her, and she's not going to be queen anymore. He's like, brilliant idea. And he wrote the law and he signed the law and he sealed the law and he sent it out all over his kingdom. So everybody, he made, he made a statement all because Vashti said no. And everybody knew Vashti's out. 
got to get someone else in. So he finally, he, he sobers up, and he, he gets a little bit less angry, you know, and he realizes what he did, but the law was a law. When he wrote it and sealed it, it was irrevocable. And he said, what am I going to do now? Again, his best buddy's advisor is like, let's have a beauty contest. Let's have him find your new queen. And so they sent out messages to all the provinces over that whole great big kingdom and said, hey, all of you leaders in all of your provinces, you get your most beautiful, beautiful virgins. Okay, that was specific. They had to be virgins. All of your most beautiful virgins. And you send them all down here to the palace in Susa. Susa was the capital of, the, of the, all of Persia. You send them down here to the palace. It's where the king lived in Susa. And, and we're going to have a beauty contest. And so that's what they did. They, they rounded up all the most beautiful virgins in all their territories and sent them all down to Susa and uh, to find out who would be the next queen. And so what they would do is, uh, one by one, they would each spend a night with the king. It's just like it sounds. And whoever pleased the king the most would become his next queen. So let's pick up the story there. Back in the book of Esther, now chapter 2. I'm just giving you, kind of walking you through it. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa, that was the the fortress palace in the capital city, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, so Hadassah was her Jewish, given Jewish name, but because she lived in this foreign land, she also had a foreign name, which was what? Right? So her, she was named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Apparently, everybody knew it because she was one of the ones chosen from her province to go uh, try out for the queen. So, so she's going to go there and be in the beauty pageant, one of the virgins that was gathered. And there was something special about Esther. Like the moment Esther arrived at the palace, she began to win people's hearts. Like all these virgins are gathered together. They know what they're there for. There's a whole big group of them. And there's a guy in charge of them. His name is Haggai. And of all these virgins, Esther won his heart. Not, like, not romantically. He just liked her. You know when you're around someone and immediately you're like, I want to spend more time with that person. That, that person's really pretty cool. Esther won Hege's heart, and so what, what he did is he gave her the best place in the palace. He gave her seven other maidens to look after her, and then she did what all the other ones did. They went through, ladies, get this, 12 months of beauty treatment. We're talking, you know, probably milk baths, rose petal bath, 12 months to get beautiful for your date with the king. 12 months worth. If they're not beautiful at the end of that time, they should never show up in the first place, right? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. So 12 months go by. At the end of those 12 months, uh, hey, guys, because, hey, you're going to be first, and you're going to be the next night. You're going to be the next night, however often they had it. You're going to go in, and you're going to spend the night with the king. And on their night when they were chosen, they got to choose anything they wanted to either wear or take in to impress the king. And when the night came for Esther's turn, she did not choose what she wanted. You know what she did? She went to Haggai, the guy in charge. She said, hey, Haggai, what would you take in? You know the king better than I do. What would he, what's his favorite thing? And Haggai told her, and that's what she took with her. She wasn't just beautiful, she was smart. So she went in and spent her night with the king, and out of all those ladies, she pleased him the most, and the king chose Esther to be his next queen. Sounds pretty great, right? But I don't want to glamorize this. 
I heard recently this described uh, by, by a new friend of mine. This was described, the whole story of Esther, as a not-so-family-friendly Disney movie. Does, does that put it into perspective? It's got all the characters. It's got all the makings of a Disney movie, right? You've kinda, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take it and compare it to maybe the movie Aladdin because it's kind of all those same characters. So you've got this kind of goofy pushover king like the Sultan, right? Um, you have, there's a bad guy. You're going to introduce him in a few moments. His name is Haman. We'll get there in a moment. But he's the bad guy. He's like Jafar from the movie. He's the king's most trusted advisor. You kind of dress him in black, right? He's the bad guy. Um, you have the, the princess, or in this case, the queen, Esther, and you also have the advisor to, to, the, to the princess or the queen. Um, in the movie, it was a genie. In this case, it's Mordecai. So you got all the characters. But don't skip over the ordinary of Esther's life. Esther's stuck in a place where she probably never, ever wanted to be. Do not look past all the loss that she's had. She's lost her homeland, or at least her people's homeland. She's living in exile. She's probably a servant in exile. She has uh, lost her parents. Both of them have passed away for, from whatever causes. We don't know. She's lost her freedom. She did not volunteer to go be part of a beauty contest for this role. She was chosen and taken from her home. And she did not... She's lost her virginity, okay? She was forced to go in and lose her virginity to a man who was not her husband, uh, nor was this her choice. In this time and, time and culture, we call that rape. And so she's lost all of this, and yet this has become her ordinary. This is the place where Esther finds herself living. But God had a very, very different plan to use her in her ordinary, but to move her to extraordinary. Um, by the way, did you know that Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God? Not once. And theologians were, um, they think they have a, a fix on that. Why? Because it shows us that even when you don't see God at work, he's at work. And you can see him at work this whole story through. So God has a different plan. He's going to be working behind the scenes through this whole story, a plan that's going to move both Esther and Mordecai from ordinary to extraordinary. And it started with a man named Haman. Okay, remember Jafar? This is Haman. This is the Jafar of the story. Let's pick back up in, in the book of Esther, chapter 3 now, verses 1 through 6. After these events, after the beauty contest, after Esther's made queen, after all those things, by the way, it was four years from uh, Vashti, you're no longer my queen, to I got a new queen. That's a four-year period in history. So after all those events, four years later, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, we don't know why the king did this. We don't know what Haman did. Maybe, maybe, Haman, um, maybe Haman told him a funny joke that he liked. Maybe Haman gave him a great, you know, here's a gift for your treasury because we know that he liked wealth. Uh, we don't know what Haman did. By the way, do you know what Mordecai did for the king at one point? Saved his life. See, Mordecai would sit around the gate. We think he was probably a servant um, of the king, and they sat around the gate. You'll hear about that in a moment. But he overheard two of the guards plotting against the king's life, and Haman, uh, or uh, Mordecai, was the one that got message to the king, these guys are going to take your life, and they, they busted that plot, saved the king's life. You know what Mordecai got out of that? A scribe wrote it down in one of the books of history, period. That's all. No thank you, no handshake, no go to Burger King, nothing like that. You saved the king's life, great, we'll make a note of that, go back to work. 
But Haman has done something that has afforded him some great honor. Verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So a better translation there at the beginning of verse 2 is not actually um, all the king's um, officials. The real translation there actually reads the servants. See, the servants would sit around the king's gate. Nobody was allowed into the palace unless you were number one summoned or you were a family or special guest. Apparently, Haman was a special guest of the king. So when Haman walked by, uh, the new law was you must bow down to him and pay honor to him as if it were the king himself walking by. So they all bowed down to him, except for one, Mordecai. Mordecai refused to get on his knees. And you might say, what? what's the big deal? Like, it's just a guy walking by. We'll get to that in a minute. But guess who got really, really angry when Mordecai would not kneel before Haman? Haman, right? Haman's like, whoa, everyone else is bowing down. But I see you stick out like a sore thumb, buddy. And Haman got so angry. He's like, I don't want to just take your life. I want to take your entire people's lives. When he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he said, okay, all the Jews need to be eradicated from our entire kingdom. So that's what he set out to do. He went to the king with this plan, and here, here was his plan. This is uh, back in Esther chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, hey, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Like, they're known. The Jews didn't give up their Jewishness just because they were living in exile. They were just living away from their Jewish home. He says, hey, they're different from everybody. They keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. He's saying, hey, these are not our people. These are the leftovers from some Babylonian conquest years and years and years ago. I don't, I don't even know why you want them here. He said, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Well, apparently this pleased the king. At least the money did. All that silver did. That was a, that was a treasure in itself. And the king said, that's a great idea. So he sent a letter to all the provinces of his kingdom, ordering all the Jews, men, women, and children, to be attacked and killed by their neighbors, their employers, their servant owners, whatever it was, on the 13th day of the 12th month. I mean, it was that specific. On that day, which was a year in advance, he wrote this at the beginning of the year. This was at the end of the year when it would happen. They had an entire year to think about the fact that people they were living around and living by and employed by or owned by were going to turn around and attack them and their families and kill them. And then they were allowed to take the plunder from anyone that they killed. Not so family friendly, is it, when you get into the book of Esther? Now, when Mordecai heard about this plan, he said to Esther, hey, Esther, even though you're a queen, you're not going to be safe up here in the citadel. You've got to act now. See, up until this time, nobody knew that Esther was a Jew. Mordecai, her advisor, uncle, had advised her, do not tell anybody you're Jew, just be Esther. And so she did. But now, when the stakes are high, when everything's at risk, Mordecai says, 
it's time. Like maybe even at such a time as this, this is why you've been made the queen, to save our people. Now, he's asking her to take a stand, which she did. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But here's what I don't want you to miss today. This is the first step in your journey, moving from ordinary to extraordinary. When Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, he was literally taking a stand. When everybody else is on their knee and their face to the ground, Mordecai stood alone, even when it could have meant his death. And I know what you're thinking. Why? Why, why didn't Mordecai just... Because you could justify it, right? I'm, I'm, he's just a guy walking by. He's, a, he's an important guy. Let me bow down. We bow down before I'm, I'm tying my shoe, whatever it is. You know, why? Two reasons. Number one, the king, Xerxes, the king of Persia, considered himself to be at least part deity. So he's like, I'm at least part God. And when he would bestow an honor like this onto somebody like Haman, he's saying, hey, by the way, you've got some of my godness now in you. That's why people are going to bow down before you. And Mordecai, being faithful to his God, his God alone, would never bow down to anyone or anything that claimed to be another God. Second reason is, did you hear earlier when I was reading about Haman, about his background? I'm sure it just it resonated with you, right? You knew all those words. You knew the whole history, right? Right. So let's just say it this way to keep it simple. Haman was a descendant of a people who were the longtime enemies of God and enemies of God's people. When Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, no wonder he wanted all the Jews to be killed. This is bred into him. This is, this is nothing new. This is generations of, of, I want to destroy you. This is old stuff. And Mordecai would never bow down to someone who was an enemy to God or God's people. So Mordecai, even at the risk of his own life, chose to take a stand. Now, what Mordecai displayed and what you'll see Esther display in a few weeks is called conviction. Not conviction like, I know I've done something wrong and God has called me on it and I feel guilty. That's, that's a different conviction. This is conviction of believing in something so strongly that you will stand for it even when it may cost you your life. So it goes way beyond just believe. You can believe a lot of stuff, but never act on it. This is, this is more than believing. This is taking a stand on what you believe. This is, this is uh, what you go to the map for. This is what you even give your life for. Conviction, conviction, conviction. And listen, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know what this means, and you know you, you need to stand for something. Like There's an old saying, right, that goes like this. If you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. That's pretty true whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. But again, it's more than just what you believe. This is deep-rooted belief. It's what you act on. And, and if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you still have convictions about things. It's this deep-seated truth that you build your life on, whatever you've chosen that to be. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know that what you stand for this is, this is so critical. God wants to know where you stand. 
You can claim to follow Jesus all day long, but you know how this goes. You're here on Sunday morning. You go to your life group sometime during the week, but in between those times and before you come back here, you're making decisions that don't count. You're you're making decisions that God would not be proud of. You're living in a way off script from what God would script for you. You know we all do this. None of us are free of this. Following Jesus doesn't make you perfect. But when it comes down to conviction, you're saying, but Jesus, even though I'm not perfect, I'm going to choose to stand on what you tell me is perfect. I'm going to choose to stand at a place where even though I've messed up before, I'm going to try not to mess up. I, I believe so strongly, Jesus, in who you are and what you say. I believe you are creator of everything. And so my conviction is that you are God and I belong to you. And so I will not waver from what you tell me is right and true. And I will do my level best to stand in this place of conviction. That's the conviction we're talking about. That's the the deep-seated truth we're talking about. And when you make that decision, it means it gets all of you. Your time, your influence, your job, your home, your money, your, your family, your inclinations, your intention, and your attention, every bit of it belongs to him. Otherwise, you're not in conviction. You're just playing the faith game. God wants to know where you stand. I'm telling you, if you stand in conviction on who God is, then he will lead you in this journey from ordinary to extraordinary. Now, you can get by for a while, hovering between the two, saying, well, God, I'm, I'm yours, but I'm also living in the world. You can get by for a little while, never really committing, you know, going back and forth, but there's going to come a point, and that may be even today, when the tension in your life between those two things gets so great that you've got to make a decision, where am I going to live? Conviction building my life on who God is or conviction by just living in the way the world lives? Conviction. So here's one of those take your breath away realizations, at least it was for me, uh, with, with all of this. I have no standing with God, right? I have no standing with God. Um, I have no worth. I have no intrinsic value. I bring nothing to the table that God can use. In fact, what I bring to the table, God probably pretty much despises. That's the story of my life. That's the story of your life. Uh, God doesn't, doesn't need you, but he wants you. But you bring nothing to the table that God says, oh, I'm so glad you brought that because I was missing that. You and I don't carry that. We have no intrinsic value like that with God. And yet... And yet God invites you to stand with him, to stand on him, to stand in his strength, to build your life on something bigger than you are, to make decisions that matter, to direct your path for you so that you can live with purpose. You who have nothing and bring nothing to the table for him, get everything from him. He takes your life and he makes you into holy ground. When you choose conviction in God, you're standing in holy ground, but then God takes you and turns you into holy ground so he can work in you and work through you in the lives of others. Now, this is not the end of the story, but it's where I'm going to stop today because today I want to give you the opportunity to make a choice, to even begin moving in the direction of building your life on conviction on who God is is. 
taking that first step to go from ordinary to extraordinary. And we're going to sing a song right now. This is so funny because, you know, Kylie chooses all our songs. And I've been waking up every morning. Like, I've, I've been in Orlando at a tremendous conference all week. By the way, it was 82 and sunny where I was. Um, but I kept waking up, kept waking up with this one song in my head. It was a Hillsong song um, called Holy Ground. And I, I, I texted Kylie like the other day, even before I came home, and said, can we, can we put this song in there? She's like, yeah, Rich, anything for you. I, I, it went something like that, right? I don't know how, how it went for sure. Um, but, but we're going to sing this song, and, and I'm inviting you to, to stand and sing this song. And we're going to sing these lyrics like, hey, this is holy ground. Like, God, you're holy. You're making this holy. But what if, what if you change the words a little bit? Like, they're, they're going to be the right words on screen, so we won't break any rules. But if you want to, you can sing. I am holy ground. And God, you're making me into holy ground. Whatever it is, you need to sing this morning. I'm telling you, I've been singing this all week long. And God's been doing something in me, making me his holy ground to work on and to work through. And this morning, from wherever you're standing out there, if you want to make a stand for God this morning, and, and I know this is going to be uncomfortable for some of you, but this whole area, the side, the front, the side is open. If you just want to come up to this altar and say, God, I don't care who else is here and what they think about me, but today I'm going to be a person of conviction and I'm going to, make a, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to make my stand with you just so God knows you're serious. You're welcome to come up front just to stand and keep singing right up in the front. Before we go there, let me pray for us into this time. So God, thank you for being a God that looks at us and sees us for more than who we are because God, we've got nothing to bring to you. At my very, very best, I have nothing that deserves your merit and your attention, God. But for some reason, even when I'm at my worst, I've merited your attention, God. And you've invited me to come and stand with you God I don't deserve that but today I choose to stand with you and I know I'm not perfect I know I'll keep screwing up but God you've got what I have everything I have to offer I offer it to you so God may my stand today become a piece of holy ground so that you have full and total access you know I'm, I am I am bought in. I am sold out to you, God, today, that you might work in me so that you might work through me. Today, I'll take my stand with you. Jesus, may this be a powerful moment in people's lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I hope you found something practical to use in your life today. At Grace Collective, our mission is to connect people to Jesus, everyone, everywhere, every day. You can visit gracecollectivechurch.com to learn more about our church and how you can get involved.